What is going on? This is John from Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've chosen to listen today to our weekly teachings podcast. At Prodigal, we're all about two things, loving God and loving people. The best way to stay connected is to download the Prodigal Church mobile app available at your app store. There you can donate, watch past series, and stay up to date on all things Prodigal. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Jesus of Nazareth is the unparalleled historical figure in all of human history. He is a rabbi to the Jews, a prophet to the Muslims, an avatar to the Hindus, an enlightened one to Buddhists, the son of God to Christians, a wise teacher to secularists, the most interesting man in the world to historians, and a friend of sinners for the rest of us. And this sermon series is going to explore Jesus, who he was, what he said, and why he died. And as Christians, it is important for us to be centered on Jesus. So this series will be very helpful for us as we discern if we've centered our faith on anything other than Jesus, right? Uh, Maybe we've centered it on a worldview or a political party or religiosity or religion or rules. To be Christian is to be like Christ. And so this series will recalibrate us to the center of our faith, which is Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I think this sermon series will be very helpful as you research and explore the most interesting man in the world. And you may find yourself being drawn to Jesus and perhaps even take your first steps in following Jesus. Or not, okay? But regardless... Time spent researching, exploring this unbelievable historical figure is certainly time well spent, whether you begin following him or not. What have been your impressions of Jesus? When I was young, my impressions of him were formed in art, in pictures and paintings of Jesus. There's this one. I think we had this picture in a small frame while I was growing up. It's amazing how a painting can shape our thinking. And then there were some little bit different kinds of paintings like these, okay? Here, is Jesus a jock? Was he a jock? Um, Sometimes he had animals around him and uh, and also small children, curiously, from all the nations of the world, um, all of a sudden in Galilee, wearing 20th century clothing. And then the 1977 film, Jesus of Nazareth, which has been shown to millions across the world, Here we find that Jesus has blue eyes and he's white. Now, I just want to say this real loud so the back row can hear as well. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't white and he did not have blue eyes. So who was Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth was a first century Palestinian Jew. And of course, there were many Jesuses around. It was a very common name. The name meant Yahweh is my salvation or God is my salvation. Um... And there were lots of boys named Jesus. That's why we always had to say Jesus of Nazareth, this specific Jesus. He's from the town of Nazareth. So Jesus grew up in so many ways, like many first century Palestinian Jews. And he likely learned the trade of his father um, or his stepdad, Joseph. He was a carpenter. He learned to work with wood. And a historical rendering of Jesus, of what Jesus may have looked like, um, is this right here much different than the Jesus so many of us thought of and have conceived of for our lives. The truth is, 
We actually don't know what Jesus looked like, but we do know that he looked much more like this than he did this. Isaiah 53 says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus of Nazareth was born somewhere around what we call 4 BC. And the people who did the calendars probably got it a, a little bit wrong, uh, but he was born just before the death of Herod the Great, which was around 4 BC. And then Jesus lived to around 30 AD before he was crucified. Now, we don't know exactly the date, but 30 seems to be the most likely. And the cultural, religious, and political climate in which Jesus was born in was an absolute cocktail of explosives. Okay, we certainly live in a divided time now, but the cultures at the, and worldviews at play during the first century were far more tense, far more divisive, and far more explosive than we even have now today. Now, some history, okay? And for some, at this point in the series, uh, it might be easy to kind of tune out, but stay with me. We'll try and keep it light at times as well. The nation of Israel, the people of God, the ones through which we have the Old Testament scriptures, they went through a whole lot as a nation. And you have to tell the story of Israel if you're going to tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth. The story of Israel really begins with Abraham, roughly 2000 BC. God makes this covenant with Abraham that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the world. God wants to bless the world through the nation of Abraham. And then 500 years later, they end up as slaves in Egypt and God raises up Moses to deliver them. We just did a sermon series on this um, several weeks back. And then eventually Israel starts their own kingdom in the year roughly 1000 BC. And Saul is the first king, David is the second king, and also the greatest king. And it is in this moment where a new covenant is made, a Davidic covenant. And God says, I will, David, I will have a son on the throne always for you. That there was going to be this new king, this king in a new way, then he's going to make all the wrong things in Israel right. And they thought that that was going to be soon. They thought this son of David was going to come about in the next several years, um, certainly in the next several centuries. But in 722, Israel was conquered by Assyria. In 589, Judah was conquered by Babylon. And then in 586 by Persia in 332 by Greece, and in 63 by Rome. And it is in this time where Jesus of Nazareth is born. And so by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the people of Israel have been oppressed and dominated for 700 years. All the while holding on to the promise that one day there will be this new king, this Messiah that's going to make things right, this anointed one, this Christ that's going to get rid of the bad guys. And during the time of Jesus, there were several different Jewish groups explaining why the Messiah hadn't shown up yet and what the people needed to do, the people of God needed to do to get rid of Rome once and for all. These Jewish sects were very influential in first century Palestine. So let's talk about these Jewish sects for a moment. Okay, let's talk about sex, baby. Uh, the first century Jewish sects all had their understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, there were the Herodians. Their slogan was, if you can't beat them, join them. 
Politics is power. So the Herodians would have heard the kingdom of God comes through political power. Get the politics right and get the right person in government. Make sure that the laws that we're making are God laws and then the kingdom of God will show up. Then the Messiah will arrive. And then the, there was the Essenes. The Essenes, their slogan was, we're safe away from the world. They were desert nomads, monks. They retreated away from the world, away from the cities, away from all the sinners out there and retreated among themselves. A monk movement. The Essenes would have said, the kingdom of God, of course, will come, but it will come in our corner just for us. And then there were the Zealots. Their slogan was, fight for justice they would use violence to overthrow the Roman rule. They would have said that the kingdom of God will come as we fight for the cause of justice. We've got to kill the Romans. Then there were the Sadducees. Uh, and these were the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. Their slogan would have been, the religious system works. The Sadducees would have said the kingdom of God will come through religious ritual. And then finally, the Pharisees were the last Jewish sect. They were the closest to getting it right. If they had a motto, their motto would be, follow the Bible. The Pharisees would say that the kingdom of God will come if everyone just follows the rules of scripture. So these five Jewish sects all are very influential in first century Palestine during the time of Jesus. And as Jesus begins his ministry, everyone's trying to figure out where he fit within this, uh, these worldviews. Well, he sounds like a zealot in some ways, but they're about power and violence, not about peacemaking and meekness. So he can't be a zealot. It's clear he's not in a scene because he wouldn't bother preaching to us and being around us even now. He can't be a Herodian or a Sadducee because they would never use language of kingdom, which could potentially be so offensive to Rome. Maybe he's a Pharisee. Why then does he talk with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and why does he seem to enjoy their company? In fact, Jesus didn't fit in any of the religious categories of the day. Rather, his life and teachings directly confront these five worldviews, these five Jewish sects. To the Herodians, Jesus would say, you need to exchange the politics of power for the power of love. To the Essenes, he would say, we are to be salt and light. We don't retreat from the world. We engage with the world in order to transform it. To the Zealots, Jesus would say, peace is not the goal to be achieved by any means necessary. Peace is also the means to which we achieve that goal. Those words were also echoed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Peace was the end and the means. To the Sadducees, Jesus signaled the religious system of his day is numbered. Jesus brought about a new covenant, a new way to relate to God and others. To the Pharisees who say, follow the Bible, Jesus says, mm, follow me. Now there's an irony there because today we learn about Jesus by studying the Bible. But we don't just follow the Bible as if Jesus is one of the many characters in the Bible. We read the Bible so that we can better follow Jesus. And that makes a huge difference. And I just kind of want to zoom in on the Pharisees because Jesus has a lot of run-ins with them. Um, the Pharisees, they were so bent on getting people to follow the rules that if they get people to follow and not break any rules in the Bible for two weeks, God will swoop in, bring the Messiah, and bring about his kingdom. They saw the Roman oppression and all other oppressors of Israel's past 
as God punishing them for not following the rules. And so uh, they get a little bit of a bad rap, right? They're so judgmental. But in their eyes, they were trying to bring about God's kingdom. And so they had to get rid of the prostitutes and the drunks and the sinners and all these bad people who were breaking all the rules. In fact, the Jewish commentary, the Mishnah, said this, that if Israel were to keep two Sabbaths, just two Sabbaths, they would immediately be redeemed. God would set them free. He would drive out the Romans with the Messiah. Just two Sabbaths, people. We can do this. So the Pharisees would move throughout Israel trying to get people to follow the law. Hey, stop doing that over there. Hey, what are you doing over there? Put that down. Oh, hey, we caught this person doing this. They thought they were doing good trying to get everybody to follow the religious rules. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, you don't need to focus so much on the letter of the law, but rather focus in on the law of love. Sometimes you have to break religious rules in the name of love. And if the Jesus movement were to catch on, you can see how it would affect all of these worldviews, all of these people groups, all of these sects in first century Palestine. In fact, many of the stories Jesus told, the miracles he enacted, the, the healings he performed were done to combat the worldview of the religious people in his day. So part of the vocation of Jesus of Nazareth was to completely upend the religious systems and worldviews of his day. But at the same time, Jesus had this, this unique vocation, this different vocation to do and be the one through whom God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That he was in some ways the fulfillment of the scriptures. That he was the prophesied king that would sit on David's throne. He would be the son of David that would bring about God's rule. See, the story of Israel and the story of God come to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. This is why it is impossible to tell the full story of Jesus without also speaking of Israel through whom Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus was more than a character in the Bible. Thomas Adams said this, the Bible is to us what the star was to the wise men. But if we spend all our time in gazing upon it, observing its motions and admiring its splendor without being led to Christ by it, the use of it will be lost on us. God couldn't say all he wanted to say in the form of a book. So he said it in the form of a human life. Jesus is what God has to say. One of the favorite topics that Jesus spoke about was actually himself, helping people to discover who he was, what his purpose was, and how he can transform their lives in the world. And he would speak about himself in such a way where people would go, who do you think you are, God? And Jesus is like, well, yeah. Uh, that is the truth about who Jesus was. He was God. Look at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. It's a bit of a paraphrase, in closest relationship with Father. The Greek word here, it's a phrase that means the one who is in the chest cavity of the Father. The one who is in the chest of God. We know what's in our chest, right? Well, it's our heart. John is saying that Jesus is the one who comes out of the chest of God. Jesus is the heart of God shown to us. He has made him known to us. Bruxy Cavey said, the Bible is like a treasure map that points the way to Jesus. But often Christians can treat the map as though it is the treasure itself. And when we do this, 
we miss the treasure completely. If we get Jesus right, our worldview and how we are to live becomes much more clear. A.W. Tozer speaks of this when he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we view God is actually the most important thing about our lives because it defines our lives. We begin to reflect that God. We begin to reflect our thoughts about God. So if you believe in a judgmental God, a wrathful God, you will exhibit judgmentalism and anger. How we think of God shapes our character. There is an ancient story coming from back in the first century and it's found on a scroll just centuries just before Jesus. And on the scroll was a short story of a woman and her husband. And the husband leaves his house every week to go and worship at the temple. And the temple was the temple of Diana in Ephesus. She was the fertility goddess. And so at her temple, one of the ways that you worshiped was to sleep with a temple prostitute. And the husband would do this every week. He was doing his duty. It was his obligation. So every afternoon as the husband left, his wife noticed that he had a certain look, a certain smile when he said, I'm off to worship at the temple of Diana. And the story on the scroll comes to an end with the husband smiling and waving goodbye one afternoon and the wife saying, if only his gods were different, then he would be different. And that is true. If our God is Jesus, we should reflect him. Who and what you worship, who are your examples in life? All of those things matter greatly in how we live. Ask yourself honestly, who do you want to emulate more than anyone else? And be honest with yourself, even if you don't like the answer. As Christians, we are called to emulate Jesus. We are to copy Jesus, to be like him, to love like him, to live like him. First Peter 2 says this, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. The Greek word here, example, is hupogramos. This word means a copybook that was prepared by a teacher for pupils to copy, okay? Jesus is our copybook. It's the perfect model that, the, that we try and trace and, and imitate. That's Jesus. He's our copy. If we as followers of Jesus would grasp this, oh, what a difference it would make in the world. What if the church became more Christ-like? What would it do for our witness in the world? What would it do as a way of being a blessing to the world? Everything we are in all of our interactions with every person and everything, we've got to base it on what we see in Jesus. This is our way to be a blessing to all nations as was made in the Abrahamic covenant in 2000 BC. This has intense ramifications. It has, to, it has to affect our daily lives. How we view Jesus does affect our daily lives and it must affect our daily lives. If it doesn't, then we don't view him the way we should. He's not our copybook. It's like when something happens that, that bothers you and then it just ruins your day, right? It puts you in a bad mood all day long. You ever been there? Like you go to, you go to work and your, your boss says, come into my office and then you get blamed for something or they criticize you for something that you worked really hard on and then it just, it just throws you off and then you get back to your desk and then you try and take a drink, drink of your coffee and it's cold and then everything else just seems to bother you around you, 
right? Toby in HR is slurping his steaming hot coffee. Jim across the way is, is, is humming a song annoyingly. Your phone won't stop ringing. You distract yourself with busy work. You find out that your stapler somehow is found in a bowl of jello. Time couldn't move fast enough. And you get home, you close the door, and you declare, I've had such a bad day. Did you though? Or was it a bad five minutes and you milked it all day long? Jesus is our example, right? Do we see that kind of example in Jesus? Can you imagine Jesus as a grump? Like as moody? Carol spills his coffee on his desk. Thanks, Carol. Nice. Someone at work tries to help him with paperwork, and then Jesus is like, well, you do it then, since you know so much. People in the office are saying, stay away from Jesus today. He's a real pill. No, if you can't see it in Jesus, then you shouldn't be able to see it in us. If Jesus doesn't fit the scene, neither should you. Paul says it this way in Philippians. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And so for those of you who are investigating Jesus, you're thinking about, do I ever want to follow him? And then you look at Christians and their lives don't seem to line up with Jesus. That's okay. Uh, that's okay for you to see the disconnect there. That's honest. But don't throw Jesus out because his followers are grumpy. If we're following Jesus, we pray blessings for our boss after he crit criticizes us. We love our coworkers instead of cursing them. We do everything we can to love those around us with the sacrificial love that Jesus shows us and demonstrated throughout his life and most ultimately on the cross. What does that look like for you this week? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not. And if you're not, I would encourage you to do the most loving thing this week. And in so doing, you are following the teachings of Jesus and perhaps even beginning to follow him and just see what happens. How can you show love to those in your life? Jesus of Nazareth showed up 2,000 years ago because religion became a form. So he replaced religion with himself, a new form, God in a human form. And Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus was resurrected, Thomas said, I won't believe it till I see it. Until I put my finger in the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe it. He was, he was a skeptic. And many of you may find yourself in that way too. You're a skeptic. There's something about Jesus that you might feel drawn to. You're listening to this. You're watching this online. But I don't know if I believe it. And Thomas maybe was very similar. He was a disciple of Jesus, but didn't believe in the resurrection. Didn't believe, I won't believe it until I, until I feel the holes in his hands and where the, in the side where he was pierced. And in John 20, 20, Jesus appears in the upper room and he immediately makes a beeline for Thomas and he says, feel the holes in my hands. And in John 20, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And here, Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas and say, that's blasphemy. I'm not God. I'm just a prophet. I'm just a teacher. No, no, no. Jesus receives his worship. And Matthew's gospel says that all the, the, the disciples began to worship him. And then Jesus says this word, you believe me because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. And that's you. 
and that's me, and that's us. Blessed are you who have not seen me and still believe. There is something about Jesus. There is something about him, something supernatural, something true, something good, something beautiful, something that is this imprint on my soul in the deepest parts of who I am that longs for him. I've given my life to him. He's my best friend. He's my hope. He's my help. He's my hero. He's my savior. He's my liberation. He's my love. He's my Lord. He's my God. And still, if I were to die and still be conscious, if I were to, to die and, and wake up and I, and I still kind of understood my own personhood and I discovered somehow supernaturally that Jesus was a myth. He wasn't real. That I had spent my whole life following Jesus, even though it wasn't real. If that happened, I will have spent my life following the highest ideal that I know, which is love in human form, being personally mentored by the one who helps me love everyone, helps me love God, helps me love my neighbor, helps me love myself, and helps me love even my enemies. And I can't find this in anywhere else. And I can't find this in anyone else. Jesus teaches the beauty of grace, this radical idea that God gifts us with his love and his life and his light, and that there's nothing I have to do to earn it. It's a beautiful way to live in the world. If I find out someday that Jesus is nothing more than someone who teaches this ideal, then I am happy to dedicate my life to following him. If that is all Jesus is, then it's enough. Now, I believe he's more. But that's enough. C.S. Lewis wrote that Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. That there was no other options. Now, we're not giving you a sales pitch to follow Jesus. We're not trying to sell you anything. In fact, when, when people wanted to make quick decisions in following Jesus, Jesus often talked them out of it. He said, count the cost, pick up your cross. This is going to cost you, this is difficult. And it is difficult and it is hard, but it is true and it is beautiful. We gotta count the cost. Following Jesus is, is hard. But at some point, we stop being friends with Jesus and we start dating. And at some point, we stop dating and we get married. We don't evolve slowly into a lifelong marriage. No, at some point we say yes. And perhaps today is the day you say yes to Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to center our lives on you that all of the pictures and images of God that we've been given throughout our lives and that we're constantly given every day, may they all conform to Jesus. And may our lives reflect your life, your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we continue our Jesus series with what he said. And that's going to be a very difficult task to do in one Sunday, but we're going to try. 
And then the next week, the finale of our Jesus series, uh, we're having baptisms. And baptisms is a great way to uh, tell the world that we follow Jesus, that we love Jesus. And so we die to ourselves and we're raised to new life in Christ. Jesus himself was baptized. And the way we like to say it is that the baptism is the tombstone to the old life and the birth certificate to the new life. You don't need a birth certificate to prove that you're alive. It's not something that we have to do as followers of Jesus, um, but it's something that we do to proclaim to the world um, that we love God. And we are uniting ourselves with 2,000 years of Christian history in proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection and our new life in him. And so in two weeks, we're having baptisms. It's not too late to sign up, uh, but if you'd like to, you can email us at prodigalchurchfresno at gmail.com. We hope you have an amazing week. Peace in the Middle East.